Hi, everybody. You're here at The Spectacle. I'm Scott McKay. Today, your singular host, as my new normal co-host, Melissa McKenzie, is on assignment slash injured reserve this week. She'll be back next week. In the meantime, I've brought in a ringer. You, most of you guys know exactly who Jeffrey Lord is. He's one of my colleagues at the American Spectator, and he is uh, uh, the, a conservative television man about town. Uh, you've seen Jeff on all of the cable news networks. He usually lights up the hour everywhere he goes, and now he's going to do that <laughs> for us. So, Jeff, it's great to see you. Uh, how are you feeling today? I'm doing great. And I should say to start, I know Melissa McKenzie. She's a friend of mine and I'm no Melissa McKenzie. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, th this is true. This is this is true on every objective uh, characteristic and even some subjective ones as well. But uh, uh, she, you know, she she's passing along her best and uh, and she'll see us next week. Uh, we got a ton of stuff going on this week, Jeff. Like this is we should just jump right in because this is one of those kind of historic weeks in, yes. uh, I think, American politics. Um, and I guess, you know, we'll start, you had mentioned uh, actually something that I wrote. Uh, um, we're recording this on Tuesday and it, it popped to the American Spectator today, talking about the alarming uh, number of verbal and physical gaffes being made by Joe Biden. Um, I mean, essentially, I'm calling him the non-compost mentis president because the stuff that's coming out of this guy's mouth and, you know, and they, you would have thought by now they would have put this guy on the shelf and kind of kept him away from the public. Um, I mean, from feeling up Eva Longoria on the White House lawn uh, <laughs> to uh, closing an address by saying, God save the queen for some reason. Um, to talking about building a railroad across the Marianas Trench in the Pacific all the way to far Bombay um, and a whole bunch of other things that this guy uh, has said has has to be led around by his hand. He doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know what he's what, what's going on. And, and, you know, it, it's it's comical to an extent, but it's really not because you really can't have any faith in the current commander in chief based on what's clear is his mental and physical state? Well, two things I would say. One, as we were talking before we went on, um, as some people out there may know, I, I wind up taking care of my mom in the latter stages of her life. I'm an only child. She was in her uh, late 90s when she started down the dementia road. And it's very it's not a drop-off-the-cliff kind of thing. It's a very gentle decline and descent. And, you know, it would start out where with she, she, she wanted to go home and I would say, Mom, you are home. Then she was not quite sure who I was. And I, of course, am her only son, her only child um, and on and on until it got to the point where she just really didn't know what was going on. I have to say, every time I look at Joe Biden, I see my mother. And I'm not a doctor. I, I can't diagnose and all that sort of stuff. But the things that we are all seeing in plain sight, where he doesn't know what side of the stage to get off of, uh, you know, he's tripping and falling all over himself, uh, on and on and on go these gaffes and these problems. And, uh, you know, it's one thing for people like us to see this and discuss it. The real dangerous part here comes because Vladimir Putin sees it. I mean, I'm convinced, for one thing, that uh, Ukraine has been invaded because Joe Biden is in the White House. 
And uh, this was something that would never have been attempted under Donald Trump. Uh, the mullahs see it. Uh, here we are dancing around some sort of a revised nuclear agreement with them. There's Kim Jong-un out there, uh, Xi Jinping in, in China. Uh, uh, this this is very dangerous stuff. And and it's sad to say, but I think, you know, that, that's a big problem. The other thing I would say is history. And Scott, you you being the reader and his, history buff that you are, I'm sure you know the tale of Woodrow Wilson. And uh, the, the tale for those in our audience who don't know, he went over to, uh, he was, of course, president during World War, World War I. And when the war was over, he became the first president to leave the country. He went over to Paris to negotiate what became the Treaty of Versailles. And he, at his insistence, got included in there the League of Nations. Right. So we came back. And of course, it was a treaty. It had to be approved by Republican senators who, who were not all that well disposed to it. So Wilson decided he would take a train trip across the country to give speeches and campaign for the League of Nations. He got somewhere outside of Boulder, Colorado. He wasn't feeling well. They stopped the train. They took him out. It was nighttime, walked him around, got him some fresh air, got him back on the train. And his wife was with him, put him to bed. He got up in the morning somewhere outside Kansas City. He got up, got dressed. He was supposed to give the speech. His wife took one look at him and said, no. You're not doing this. They issued a statement that he was, quote, unquote, indisposed. They went back to Washington. They go back into the private residence. And one or two mornings later, she gets up and goes into the bathroom and he's on the floor, unconscious, blood streaming from his head. The bottom line, he'd had a stroke. Right. Um, she summons the doctor, the White House physician, who was a longtime ally of, of uh, Wilson's along with his private secretary, a man named Joe Tumulty. Uh, they made sure he was in bed and, and comfortable in all this. And the doctor said to Mrs. Wilson, any decisions that come to him could cause him stress and could kill him. So you've got to keep these decisions from him. So what happened? I always say famously, Hillary Clinton had she won would have been the second woman to run the country because Mrs. Wilson, ran the country until yeah. he had some ability to recover. My question is, okay, right now, who's really running this country? Because I don't yeah. think it's Joe Biden. Now, whether it's Dr. Jill Biden or whether it's his chief of staff, I don't think, frankly, it's Kamala Harris because I don't think they like or trust her. Um, but I do think there's stuff going on. And frankly, Scott, we may be gone from this earth when historians uncover this, but uh, something is amiss there. Yeah, well, I mean, it's my theory all along that there were four women running the country, which was Jill Biden, Nancy Pelosi, uh, probably Kamala Harris in a much diminished uh, capacity, and Susan Rice. Yeah. Um, Pelosi is gone. Susan Rice is gone. Um, I don't think Kamala's power base is any greater than it was before. So, you know, you might have an Edith Wilson scenario um uh unfolding kind of in a different sort of venue or it could be a man named barack obama <laughs> well and, and it always kind of comes in i'm glad you, you just plugged the book that i've got coming out in september which is that you know it's it's all obama um because it ultimately gets decided in calorama and then how it's distributed to the public is what we're what we're theorizing over. right 
Um, you know, because Joe Biden would have never been the Democrats nominee had it not been for Barack Obama essentially saying, OK, fine. You know, I think Kamala was his, but they couldn't sell her. And so they settled on somebody else. And and Biden was the most um, um, obsequious of the bunch, I guess. Uh, and so it was like, all right, fine. You know, we know all about this guy, but, you know, he'll take orders. So fine. Make him the nominee. Um you know, but so you've always had this bad dynamic, right? Which is that the, the commander in chief is not the commander in chief. Um, and nobody really has a whole heck of a lot of faith that if a decision had to come to Joe Biden, that he would do a good job of it. I mean, if you remember the, the famous quote by Obama was never underestimate Joe's <laughs> ability to F things up. Right. And I don't think that's changed. Right. Like he hasn't built any more faith in his decision making capacity uh, in the in the intervening time between then and now. Uh, if anything, it's far less, right? Because well, I have, look at uh, the performance. I can give you one Biden story that involves me, my younger self. When I was a teenager, I was a huge fan of Bobby Kennedy. And of course, tragedy ensues. He is killed, assassinated, and all of this kind of thing. I'm stricken. Uh, shortly thereafter, record companies, long-playing record companies, started putting out records of his speeches. A little geek that I was, I would sit up in my room and memorize the speeches. Okay, now you flash forward to September of 1987. I'm a White House political director for President Reagan. The Dukakis campaign, running a, Governor Dukakis of Massachusetts, running against Biden for the Democratic nomination, puts together a video side by side of the uh, Labor Party leader, Neil Kinnock by name, why am I the first Kinnick in my family and my generation to do all this and get an education and my coal miner ancestors, et cetera? Then they move to the other side of the split screen and there is Joe Biden. Why am I the first right. Biden? He was right. plagiarizing. Absolutely. So the Biden campaign said, oh, no, no, he, he this was a mistake. He doesn't do it. And that's when I said, not so. In February of that year, Washington had had a snowstorm. And I'm sure you're familiar, you know, everything goes into the, you know, whatever, when it snows in Washington, everything shuts down. I live right. fairly close to the White House. So I was in my office alone. Well, it's snowing like mad, no phones ringing. So I thought, well, I'll watch C-SPAN and see what's up. And there is Joe Biden giving a speech to the California Democratic Party convention. And I thought, well, I'll watch. He's supposed to be a good speaker. And suddenly I realized... I was getting to the end of his sentences before he was. Exactly. Like, hey, I can give uh -oh. this speech. I got it memorized. <laughs> so uh, when this uh, uh, event unfolded in September of that year, I was now in a position to do something about it. So I picked up the phone and called Maureen Dowd, then a political reporter for the New York Times, right. told her this. She was a god. And she said, can you prove this, document this? I said, oh, yes, I can. I'll go home to Pennsylvania over the weekend, get my Bobby Kennedy records, and I'll deliver them to the U with the New York Times on Monday. Well, I did. <laughs> on Wednesday, there was a front page story throwing <laughs> questions for Biden over his speeches, and it quotes yours truly, <laughs> saying that in my office in the White House, I had a, a, a portrait, uh, the Jamie Wyeth portrait, which I have right over here of President Kennedy, who was also my childhood idol, and that I memorized all these speeches. Well, the next night, Leslie Stahl, 
from CBS picks up that uh, he'd had an issue like that, I think, with his when he was in law school. Oh, well, yeah. within a handful of days, he got out of the race. <laughs> right. But it was just because he, he just was making it up as he went along. He was just flat out not telling the truth. And, uh, you know, I mean, it wasn't a very bright thing to do. I mean, how could you possibly yeah. think that you could, you know, steal speeches from one of the most famous people in American history in the 1960s and and that nobody would notice? <laughs> well, that's it, it, really the amazing thing about Biden, right? Like, that has never stopped, you know, no. whether it's plagiarizing speeches or I mean, the, the, to me, the most notable thing about Biden now is he gets questions you would expect from really anybody in a position of high office about personal conduct and things that are actually relevant to the American people like this entire Biden bribery thing. Um, and we're going to pivot to Hunter's deal that came out on on uh, on Tuesday as well. Um, but like, you know, he gets, Hey, most of the American people think that you're corrupt. Right. I mean, like, what do you have to say to that? I mean, that's like the, I'd kind save of the queen is his answer. <laughs> yeah. And it, right. And I mean, the response, Oh, that's a stupid question. I'm not answering it. And it's like, no, you have to answer that. If you were anybody else other than, you know, the Democrat president in 2023, this would be, you know, a hook that you can't wriggle off of. Well, I, and I yet really he do. just blows it off and that's it. Yeah. Like you, you're just not going to get an answer to this question and you're I, not going to really... get it from uh, Queen Corrine and you're not going to yeah. get it from uh, from John Kirby or anybody else. It's just, nope, we've got nothing to say about this. I, and, I really think that the way he deals with this is very revealing. You know, at one point he said, well, where's the money? Well, I think the Republicans in the House. Four are mansions. That's where they're the money in is. These, they're in all these LLCs and right. all sorts of Biden family member names. I, I really do think that uh, James Comer and Jim Jordan are are digging away and digging away, and they're coming up with stuff. And I I just think this is not going to end well for him. Uh, I think they will have documented evidence as we go along. I think they're starting to produce it. Yeah, it's like pulling teeth to get it from the Justice Department and the FBI and all that kind of thing. But over time, I think they're making some progress. So I just think, you know, we stay tuned for this because I think there is a lot more to come. And the Hunter situation is sort of a tip off because, you know, instead of going full bore, this is the sort of uh, let him off like he's got a parking ticket, as it were. Uh, yeah. thinking this will solve things and it ain't going to happen. Okay. So uh, now is when I put my Melissa hat on because you know, you know what Melissa's response to this is, which is nothing's going to happen. Right. Like they, they're Hunter got a sweetheart deal. He's not going to do jail time. They're letting him off on misdemeanor failure to file tax charges on bribery money that he took from China and, and Ukraine and whoever else. Right. The gun charge, which if you or I were guilty of that, um, they would bury us for it. He's getting off on a, on a pretrial diversion type of thing. Um, and the initial reaction that, I, you know, that I've seen around the Internet on some um, you know, stuff locally here and, and elsewhere is outrage absolute outrage that the justice department just does not look like they are gonna do anything about this at all um that this is the first 
uh, salvo in the, you know, whitewashing of Hunter Biden's laptop and everything else. Um, and that Congress may do, you know, a bang up job of investigating it and dumping all of the evidence out. But to actually get the Justice Department to to, you know, come off center and do something about it other than to just some sweetheart deal uh, that you're just not going to get it because we have a two tier justice system. Um, well, I do what do you say to that? Problem. Yeah, I do think that that's a problem. There's no question. Listening uh, to uh, Clay and Buck today, uh, they were talking about the need to start impeachment proceedings of Merrick Garland. And uh, yeah, I, I would have I, done that two years I, ago. I, I, yeah. I just I just think, you know, we might expect this. We, we have the instant reaction with, you know, OK, see now do it. And right. I don't think it's going to work like that. I think this is going to slowly unravel. Um, I think that the public is going to be catching on to all of this. The very fact that Donald Trump's poll numbers went up <laughs> after his indictment says to me that his base, and I live in the middle of Pennsylvania, as you know, and there you, you drive around here, you still see, you go down, you go down the Pennsylvania Turnpike, and you know it's very rural on either side, and some farmer has uh, a trailer truck without the cab on the side with mammoth letters Trump <laughs> on it. <laughs> and then when you come back the other way, another farmer has this huge mound of dirt with green grass and bushes and all that, all of which are used to spell Trump. <laughs> <laughs> so but this tells me that the intensity of his support is out there and the more these kind of things happen the more popular he becomes and i think uh you know we, we're a long way from uh the end of this yeah it, it's you know i share in melissa's lack of faith in the justice system yeah um as it's currently constituted and certainly doj i mean i you know i I, I, I don't know what your take is on the on the stuff that came out a week or so ago um, where DeSantis was talking about if he if he went in that he'd basically break up DOJ, move all the offices out of D.C. and all that kind of stuff. Like I'd like everybody in the Republican uh, field to say, yep, that's my plan, too. Let's take this off the table because any one of us is going to do this. Um you know, which I know is maybe pie in the sky, but I think it's a good idea and I'm all for good ideas. Well, um, you know, one of the things that uh, I vividly remember, and I have now gone back and I, I think I've written about it a few times in The Spectator and uh, read and reread the article just the other day. On January 31st of 2017, the Washington Post of all places had a front page article. This is 11 days after Donald Trump took the oath of office. And the front page article is all about resistance from within. And it talks about all the bureaucracies and people in the bureaucracies going out of their way to work with ex, you know, White House Obama staffers to uh, basically screw up the Trump administration and everything involved with it. It specifically names the Department of Justice as one yeah. of the places that needs to be cleaned out. And of all, for all reasons that still sort of mystify me, they went to Newt Gingrich because he's very familiar with the issue. And he said, absolutely, he should start with the Department of Justice and then maybe move on to the State Department. 
But right. I think this is uh, this is a very real problem, and I think the American people are increasingly getting it in all yeah. its many manifestations, which helps. Well, you know, I, I mean, and it's you, you come back to a few writers often, um, and and a couple podcasts ago, um, we had John David uh, D- John Daniel Davidson from the Federalist on, um, and you know, and, and the point was made that like you keep coming back to things C.S. Lewis wrote right like over and over again when you start talking about the culture battles in america and, and so forth you also keep coming back when in the political realm you keep coming back to angelo Cotavilla, right yes. when he started talking about the country class versus the ruling class the ruling this is class. back in 2010 2011 2010 i have the book right over there yeah and and I, you know because this is such a classic case of that right like the, yes. because the country class looks at this and goes wait a minute how in the hell could you possibly indict Donald Trump for boxes of documents when Hillary Clinton was bleach bidding her entire email server? And we all know why she was running a, a influence peddling operation out of the secretary of state. And she needed to protect herself from FOIA requests on that. Like we all know that's what she was doing and nobody's doing anything about it. Um, you know, and that's the country class reaction. The ruling class is what Jack Smith said, which is, well, nobody's above the law. It's like, yeah, but that's unless a crappy you're, unless argument. you're Hillary Clinton, right? <laughs> or that's Joe a Biden. crappy argument. We've already said that there's somebody that's above the law here, and you guys did nothing about it. And now you're telling us nobody's above the law when it's our people, right? Um, this is one of these things, Scott. I mean, I, I, you're going to be talking about this. For a long time, I think, because this is going to unravel in perhaps slow motion fashion, uh, slower than we would like to see. But I think, you know, it's happening. Okay, well, that actually this provides us a fairly interesting little segue, right? Because the flip side of it is um, here's Trump. And on Monday night, he goes on Fox News and he does an interview with Brett Baer, right? Um, and it was kind of an interesting interview. I don't know that it was earth shattering. I mean, it was kind of a typical Trump interview in a lot of respects. I was. Um, amused, I have to say, I was amused when uh, Trump. I mean, he just knew, he, and I'm sure Brett knew this was going to happen. But he goes after Fox while he's sitting there live on Fox, and I thought, I oh man. I know. Oh man, you just knew this was coming somewhere along the where in the universe Rupert Murdoch is sitting there gritting his teeth. <laughs> oh, I know. Well, and and Bear baited him because he's like the number one viewer segment of Fox News is independence, and Trump's like, not as many as you used to. <laughs> and it's like, oh my god. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's just. What can I say? Uh, it's, it's. And I might uh, add, you know, I am now a officially a Newsmax contributor, so. There you go. <laughs> I I was watching and I was just kind of chuckling. I, I mean, I've met Brett Barry. He's a great guy. He's a seriously good journalist. Right. Um, but I thought, wow, I'm glad I'm watching this on TV and not in the room. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, one of the things that happened in this interview, though, and uh, you know, I'm sitting there watching. I didn't watch it live. I watched it later, and I'm just I'm, I'm looking at like uh, because. Bear asks him about, well, you know, look, you got a subpoena. Why didn't you just turn these documents over? Then they wouldn't have been able to do anything to you, right? And Trump's response is, well, I hadn't gone through the boxes and there's golf shirts in there and there's shoes and there's all those kinds of stuff. And it's all declassified, so it's not a big deal. And I'm, I'm, you know, like I'm watching this 
and every lawyer I've ever met is in my head going, when you get indicted, do not talk about your case. Do not say a word about it. Shut up. Keep quiet. And Trump's just blah, 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 blah. And I'm going, okay, this is, this is, this is, there's under no circumstances is this a good idea for you to be talking about these things. I don't know that he said anything that was like damning or even really damaging, but it's, you know, as somebody who likes Trump and doesn't want to see this thing go any further, you, you can't help but get very nervous. I would be, I would be curious, not being a lawyer, I would be curious as to what his lawyers said about doing this interview in the first place. Um, but that said, um, I'm sure that conversation ended with, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, knowing him, and this is one of the things that I found uh, attractive in him as a potential candidate. You know, I wrote my first piece, Never Ignore Donald Trump, in 2013 in The Spectator. And one of the things that I thought could get him elected and make him a success as president is precisely because he was not out of the deep state, as it were. Right. He was out of the swamp. He 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 thought independently. He approached things with a whole new point of view. Yep. And Lord knows he's not lacking in self-confidence. So when you get to a situation like this, I I mean, that's his way of approaching most things. And I think he thought, okay, sure. I'll sit down. I sat down with CNN. I'll sit down with Brett. And uh, I sat down with Sean Hannity. And, uh, uh, you know, I'll sit down with uh, whomever. I I just think that that, that's his view of the world. And, uh, at this point, I don't think anybody's going to stop him. <laughs> exactly. It's like, it's it's a force of nature. You just, you, you know, if you're Trump's attorney, you just grit your teeth and you do with it. Right. Um, okay. So, so the trial date was set on this business with the, the Jack Smith indictment. And it's, I think it's August 14th. Uh, uh, my late grandmother's birthday. Are that <laughs> Yeah. I'll remember this for what do you sure. Think the chances are that trial going off. Well, again, I'm not a lawyer, but it would just seem to me that this is going to keep being pushed back. Now, I could be yeah. completely wrong. Uh, you know, they'll find a way and they'll find another way. I mean, to me, when when you're in this kind of situation, the presumption is that everything will stay static just as it is at this exact moment in time. And of course, the real world does not work that way. And heaven only knows what's going to happen in in this political world of ours between now and August of uh, uh, this year. I mean, so um, this is why I always tell people, invest in popcorn stock. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, because you're going to need a lot of it for this. You know, I I think that there's... um, there's no chance they'll be able to dispose of this case in two months. Um, I think that uh, that um, the both the prosecution and the defense uh, would like to see this thing extended. Um, if I'm if I'm Trump, I want the, this thing has been political gold for him. Yes. So stringing it along into the primaries, um, I think is 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 a good thing. I think it's a good thing until it's not, 
right? Because at some point the Republican electorate might start getting nervous about this. Not that they not that they think that there's much to it or that it's not an injustice or any of that. I think the logistical stuff may start to make people a little, you know, freaked out about you well, what you know, what how are we gonna win this election when we're gonna have all of this stuff front and center? Um, and and you know, I, I noticed you were talking about Clay and Buck. One, I, I actually was listening to some of that too. And one of the things that Clay said I thought was really good um, was 2024 has got to be a referendum, not Trump. Right. Um, and if Trump is on trial, I think it with independents and sort of the non-political folks. Um because it's kind, it's almost an explain. You're explaining, you're losing type of thing. I think he needs he needs to have this behind him some sort of way, um, and this needs to be about Joe Biden and the damage that those guys are doing. Well, foreign and, that, and domestic, economic, political, yes. cultural, the whole bit. Um, and, and it will be, I think, to some to some considerable degree. But the other thing that I think the undercurrent here, um. I'll give you I'll give you an example. We have something here. I live in suburban Harrisburg, state capital, and every year we have, and we had it just the other week, something known as the Pennsylvania Leadership Conference, which is, in essence, a Pennsylvania version of CPAC. And we had, I think it was about nine hundred people in the big motel up the road here. Uh, Ron DeSantis came and spoke, and all of this kind of thing. But I was on a panel with uh, my friend. Uh, uh, Paul Kanger from the American Spectator, and also John Gizzi from Newsmax. And just in passing at one point, we were talking about Trump, and I said, you know, I think he makes a very good point when he says, uh, it's not really me they want, I'm just in the way, they're really coming after you. Well, I just made it as a casual aside. All of a sudden, the entire audience rose as one and started cheering, <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. We believe this. We believe yeah. that they'll come after us if this doesn't happen. And then I saw, um, I guess it was uh, it was Trump uh, or somebody giving a speech on television with an audience, and and the same thing happened. Mm -hmm. So I really do think that that is an undercurrent out there, uh, where you've got a lot of people who see, you know, oh, this is basically Trump versus the deep state. And the deep state, whether it's the media, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, what have you, whether it's the New York Times, the Washington Post, the networks. Right. Um, Woke corporate America, the whole bit. Corporate yeah. America, all of that sort of thing, that they see this as a real problem. And I think that that issue, maybe not all by itself, but I think combined with the state of the country and as delivered by Joe Biden, all of that could be very potent together. Well, yeah. And, and see, my theory on this has always been that the movement that Trump heads up is the same movement that has been there since Reagan. Yes. Um, and, you know, occasionally that movement gets somebody to pick up the standard and bear it. Um, and then it it does things right. I mean, you know, with Reagan, it was super successful and then it kind of went into remission because nobody was really effectively bearing the standard and then along comes newt gingrich right and he picks it up in 94 and they and they ride it to uh, a congressional majority um and then it goes sort of back into remission a little bit until trump comes along 
Right. Um, well, there was a Tea Party movement, which didn't actually have a standard bearer per se. Um, but, you know, the Republicans retook Congress in 2010, basically along the lines of the Tea Party, except the people that were running Congress didn't want to hold true to the Tea Party's ideals. But You know, Scott, I wrote in uh, in 2016 when Trump was starting to win. And if this was like August or something like that. I wrote a column for The Spectator called Yes, Trump Can Win. Mm-hmm. And and quoted all the naysayers about why this was going to be a disaster, et cetera. But since I had worked for President Reagan, I went back and took a look. Right. What was said by establishment Republicans in the oh. day. And yeah. there they all were. Nelson Rockefeller, Charles Percy, Jacob Javits, um, Gerald Ford, saying that if Ronald Reagan were ever nominated, it would be a disaster and possibly the end of the Republican Party. (laughs) And that, you know, this was this was a terrible thing. And uh, he was an extremist. He was a bad candidate and all this kind of thing. Well, of course, as we all know now, Ronald Reagan got elected twice in two landslides, the second bigger than the first. Uh, And I and I I really do think I mean, you know, they talked about. Reagan Democrats, you know, these auto workers in Michigan who who were blue collar Democrats and they responded to Ronald Reagan. I mean, they really got his message and the country clubbers were not happy, but uh, it was the blue collar working Americans that carried him across the, 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 the entrance to the White House. And I think that is exactly the same audience that Donald Trump has. And I, I went to, you know, I would go to these Trump rallies and I remember on one occasion sitting behind a woman and talking with her while we we're waiting. She worked for uh, Hershey's. Hershey is is about 25 miles from where I am. And the part of Hershey that she worked for had picked up and, yes, gone to Mexico and with it, her job. She was not a happy camper. And uh, she was no wealthy country clubber. You know, she was your basic uh, working American. And uh, that's the kind of effect that I think, I mean, that Donald Trump, he he gets it. And uh, so these people respond to him. Yeah. I just think, I, I, I think he's, he's got to expand that movement. Yes. Um, and it's, and it's doable because, um, you know, you have people that voted for Biden in 2020 um who have not profited by that obviously the country is by every possible measure worse off than it was um you know at least at least at the beginning of 2020 before covid and all of that stuff came along um you know I, I, the real question is is okay you got to give the public somebody to connect to as a reaction to how bad biden is and you know if you're trump you just you just need to be able to, to say, look, I gave you good times. You might not have liked the tweets, but I gave you good times, and those are easy to bring back. And I think certainly, I think you saw if you watched the Brett Bayer interview, there was a, a good bit of that messaging. So he's he is working on that, talking about, hey, I can fix these problems in a very short period of time. Like we can get a handle on inflation in no time flat. Um, you know, you go drill for oil and you go do some things to boost the productive sector of the economy. Um, like those are the messages that I want to see. I think you win big talking about, you know, like talking about inflation, talking about the border, yes. which he did a lot of. Um, but I also think you need to talk about the culture. Yes. Um, 
because to me, I think the cultural stuff everywhere I'm looking at politics, I think the cultural stuff has become central, particularly, I mean, especially to these independent voters, these suburban moms or whatever, who are terrified that, you know, some idiot teacher at a school is going to trans her kids. Um, You know, I mean, like, I think those things and it's long been sort of a Republican establishment thing that, oh, whatever you do, don't get in bed with the Jesus freaks and fight the culture war and all this kind of stuff. And that has changed so dramatically because that's the center right now is anti-woke, call it cultural politics. I call it a spiritual war. Yeah. Um, well, you, and, know, you know, look, we're going to have to preserve the American ideal because there is a a large cadre of people in power that want to break it down and change it to something that none of us recognize. When you see, you know, traditionally in, in our American system, it's presidential elections and sometimes a senator or governor's election that get all the attention and the heat. I mean, in our short existence here in the last year or two, suddenly we're seeing the the dead center of all this being school board meetings. Who sure. knew? Yeah. Right. And all Absolutely. these angry parents uh, showing up and everything and then finding out that the FBI is labeling them domestic terrorists. <laughs> right. And all this. And uh, there are people talking about, you know, mutilating their kids without their consent and I mean, this is this is just going on and on and on. There's one incident that I, I want to say I'm not sure it was in America. It might have been in the UK. I had, I had to laugh. The teacher was reprimanding some reprimanding some child because another child in the class was identifying as a cat, and the and the teacher reprimanded the kid who said she's not a cat, she's a girl. <laughs> <laughs> oh no yeah i mean you can't make this up and one of the people that i think is is uh and this is why i think he's come under attack from barack obama is tim scott yeah and um you know we all know the deal here they're all for african americans unless of course they happen to be black and conservative and uh right. i can easily imagine uh trump winning and picking tim scott as his running mate and yeah. that would seriously drive Democrats crazy because they would have a genuinely bona fide up from his bootstraps, uh, young, black, attractive senator. Sure. And uh, wow. I mean, t- Tim know. Scott does so much damage to the woke critical race theory narrative. Yes. Um, that it's, you know, and especially if, if if you're running against Biden and Harris, which Ultimately, I don't think that that's who your opponent is going to be. But if you are running against Biden and Harris and you want to put Harris and Tim Scott side by side. Right. And, you know, she's what is she? She's the daughter of of university professors. You know, I think she was born in Canada and like, you know, fairly privileged existence and, um, you know, moved up in the world based on her um, relationships with people. <laughs> nice. Yeah, and then you compare that to Tim Scott, you know, who grew up without shoes and like, had, you know, had the, in, the whole real hardcore American up from the bootstraps. Yes. Um, sort of uh, political and, and professional lineage. And, you know, I, I mean, you really are at that point talking ruling class versus country class. This, this is why they so hate 
black conservatives because yeah. they realized that they had a chokehold on the black vote. And the minute somebody like Clarence Thomas emerges, or now Tim Scott, or, right. or Byron uh, Donald, her name, her name yeah. escapes me, but the lieutenant governor of Virginia. Uh, Winston Sears. Yes. Yes. Mark Robinson in North Carolina. And Mark Sears. Robinson. Yes. The moment these people start to emerge, they get really upset and really angry because they really do think the black vote is proprietary to them and uh, not yeah. so. And there are plenty of uh, African-Americans out there who just don't see themselves that way and reject it out of hand. Tim Scott is certainly one. And, you know, he came here uh, to York. York is about 30 miles down the road. Uh, Sean Hannity had a uh, in, during the fall election had a town hall type thing with um, Dr. Oz, um, but he was preceded, Dr. Oz was preceded by uh, Tim Scott, uh, Tom Cotton, and uh, a couple others. Newt Gingrich was there and others. And, uh, you know, I got to listen to Tim Scott. Wow. He's a very, very impressive guy. And yeah, he's uh, great. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, if, if he were to be on that ticket, uh, look out. I think of all of the people in the race right now, the one who is probably most likely running for vice president more than president and is the best option of the bunch would be Scott. You know, I always say, Scott, I always compare politics at this level to Major League Baseball. In the sense that if you are high school or college and you're a baseball star in on your school team, you're not going to get picked up by the New York Yankees or the Boston Red Sox. What you're going to do is get picked up by a farm team and you're right. going to play at the farm team level. And then as your talent really starts to spill out with other players who are similarly talented, then the Yankees and the Red Sox or a major league team will come right. calling for you. And I think that what we are seeing here, in a sense, is the future of the Republican Party post Donald Trump, you know, whether it's right. Tim Scott, um, uh, Tom Cotton. I mean, there's just a whole raft right. of people in and out of this race at the moment sure. who are fairly young. And I think as yeah. we go down the road, they're mm -hmm. going to emerge as significant players. If Trump does win, I think somebody will be VP for him. One of these people mm -hmm. will be VP, and I think others will be in the cabinet. And mm -hmm. uh, that that's their ticket to the White House at some point. Uh, okay, let's pivot, because we, we before the show, we talked about uh, how we wanted to do a little bit of stuff on some foreign policy, and you specifically mentioned China. Um, we're just coming off uh, a visit that uh, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, made to Beijing where he comes back and basically says, uh, you know, I, I essentially repudiated the independence of Taiwan. Yeah. Um, in a, I thought, really inartful statement. I mean, I, I don't think that what he said was a change in American policy, but it's the kind of thing that you don't need to say in front of the world stage. Right. Um, and it just comes off as, as utter weakness. Um, and I, you know, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that because I, I, I well, you know, again, I'm reminded, it all comes back to how dangerous this is to have yeah. such a such a weak administration in in the White House right now. 
Well, back there in 1981, um, the air traffic controllers union was threatening to go on strike. And the wisdom in Washington, and I was working for a congressman at the time, was uh, Reagan is threatening to fire them if they go out and he he won't do it because there's 11,000 of them and uh, it would cripple the country and all this sort of thing. Reagan, on the other hand, marches out to the Rose Garden with uh, somebody that I knew well, the Secretary of Transportation, who was my old boss from Pennsylvania politics, Drew Lewis. And Reagan looks the camera in the eye and says to the traffic control union, which, by the way, had supported him in the election in 1980, said, uh, if you walk off your job, I will fire you. Okay. They didn't believe him. They walk off their job. He fires all 11,000 of them. Well, what we, and then eventually a settlement is reached and all that kind of thing. But what we didn't realize at the time, and we later learned is that watching this whole escapade was the Soviet Union. And they began to say to themselves, holy cow, he believes right. what he says. He's not going to be afraid to, you know, come through. So in other words, one action that had, in a sense, nothing whatsoever to do with foreign policy was taken as a guide by the Russians as to how yeah. to deal with, with Trump. Now, yeah. I would suggest that in our time frame here, the disaster that was Biden in Afghanistan has been watched very closely by the Chinese and mm -hmm. the Russians, I mean, and the Russians, all for sure. the bad guys, mm -hmm. and they're saying to themselves, "He's weak, he's incompetent." This is why I think we have uh, Russians in Ukraine. Yep, and this is why I think Taiwan is in danger, because I think they're just looking at Joe Biden and saying, "Well, he doesn't mean what he says. He, he's a pushover. He's weak," and so they're going to do what they're going to do. And I think that is the real dangerous thing here. Yeah. And, and and none of the things that have needed to be done from the very beginning, particularly where China's concerned, you know, have been done. Get, you know, give Trump a ton of credit because he was of anybody in the American political class. Donald Trump was the guy who looked at China and said, OK, we need to start disengaging from these guys because this yes. entire trade episode with them is the worst thing that we've ever done. We've taken an enemy and enriched them at our expense. Yes. Um, you know, like we've basically sold out our global position of leadership for cheap stuff that we can sell at Walmart and Target um, and on Amazon. And, you know, and we've hollowed out our industrial base in the process. So let's start disengaging from China. And that has come to a complete halt. Um you know, and the weirdest thing about this, and this is maybe off a, a bit of a digression, but it was globalist people who touted the trade relationship with China, right? which is not a globalist trade relationship. It's an exclusionary trade relationship because the stuff that we're buying from China, we should be buying from India, from Vietnam, from the Philippines, from Brazil, from Mexico, right. from Nigeria, and all these other countries that should be sharing in the prosperity of that trade relationship with the United States. And instead, China's monopolized. Um, you know, to, to 
overthrow the globalist regime in America built post-war <laughs> to, to replace it with their own basically neo-Soviet bloc that they're building. And, you know, everything about this is it's like, okay, how did this happen? Because it sense that anybody would go for this. And then, of course, you come back to the Bidens and the money they got paid from the Chinese that we don't have any explanation for, right? Um, that is right. Knowing that they're not the only family in America that has benefited from a relationship with uh, Chinese business interests that doesn't necessarily comport to any particular uh, legitimate service or product that they've provided to those people. Um, you know, and like I notice, all of Hunter Biden's business partners are also heavily connected to, um, you know, family members who are political. Um, you know, John Kerry's kid, right? And I have I guess, to say, I have to say uh, an asterisk on that. That is really not John Kerry's kid, right? Uh, it's Teresa's kid. A, yeah. As you may know, I was uh, in the long ago and far away executive assistant to U.S. Senator John Hines when Chris Hines was a mere child. <laughs> and somewhere, I have to believe his dad is somewhere saying, what are you thinking yeah. getting involved with these people? Probably not that happy, yeah. Uh, you know, but what can I say? Uh, well, I, you know, I, it's I, the old insider game. I mean, this yeah. is how the swamp works. In that in that sense, you, you pull back at 30,000 feet and the entire town of Washington, D.C., works this way and that that's part of the problem right right well i think there's no doubt about it um okay i've got one last thing and uh because you've got a piece at the american spectator that we're recording this on tuesday it came out today um talking about juneteenth and the demand for hair pulling on a national uh scale that the uh biden folks have done. And what you note is, uh, can we start with the Democrat Party, please? Um, because if we're supposed to, you know, show, um, you know, a great deal of, of uh, uh, regret and, and uh, redemption for, you know, how black people have been treated in this country, can we start with the political party that institutionalized it over the course of 100 years? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the point is, why did we need Juneteenth in the first place? I'm all for it. But why did we need it? We needed it because the Democratic Party, which was formed by slave owners, yep. and then they started, they were the first political party. The Republican Party didn't exist at that point. They became the first political party to write political platforms in their presidential years. And... Uh, Geek that I am, I have gone back and read them all. And the first six were staunchly supporting slavery. Imagine that. And and said, you know, if you try to end it, this, this will be a serious problem. Well, that did eventually pan out. A lot of Democrats left the Union, and uh, it was called the Civil War, et cetera, uh, as they were losing towards the end. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, God bless him, the founder of the Republican Party, got uh, the 13th, 14th, 15th amendments introduced and passed uh, Democrats in Congress. And I looked, opposed them. The 13th abolished slavery. The 14th gave blacks due process rights. The 15th gave them the right to vote. So with that, uh, with that settled, uh, Democrats set about setting up 
Jim Crow laws, a.k.a. segregation. And that system lasted in, into the 1960s, and they built their political party on this. Right. It was all about race. This is why I call them the party of race. And in our day and age, um, it's all about what, uh, identity politics, which I call the son of segregation, um, because they want everybody to be judged by skin color. This is a real problem with the Democratic Party. This is who they are. And yeah. I mean, this is why Kamala Harris is there, not because she was qualified to be vice president, but because she was black. And the right. notable thing is we referenced Clarence Thomas earlier, and I'd worked on Supreme Court, and I'm not a lawyer, but I'd worked on five Supreme Court nominations in the Reagan era, including Robert Bork. <laughs> that went well. <laughs> but then in the Bush 41 era, when Thomas came along, um, I was working over there at, at HUD, so I wasn't involved, but I'm watching all of this. And all of these, you know, like the NAACP and all this, this vacancy on the court came about because the first black justice, Thurgood Marshall, appointed by Lyndon Johnson, retired. And the call went up immediately. This is the black seat on the, on the Supreme Court. Well, George H.W. Bush obliged. And out he comes in Maine with Judge Clarence Thomas. He was summer vacation, and there's Judge Thomas standing there with his wife and uh, Virginia, who's a great person. Well, of course, they went ballistic yeah. because, as Clarence Thomas himself would later say, they wanted a black guy, but I was the wrong black guy. <laughs> <laughs> he was. This is, this is what they do. So this is their their party is very much based on race, and if you turn out to be uh a man or woman of color and you happen to belong or, or happen to believe in conservatism uh, they're coming for you so uh this this problem with democrats and race has not changed at all so to hear them crowing about uh, june you know juneteenth uh we had to have juneteenth in the first place because they put up uh, a tremendous fight about uh, ending slavery so there you go well and what just grates at me is the, um, the well, the insincerity of this, obviously, the hypocrisy of it as well, because, uh, you know, there were Juneteenth celebrations staged all over the country. Um, and in all of these places where the civil rights community um, has elected the local leadership, okay, Um Milwaukee is a Democrat run city. There was, you know, six people shot, uh, you know, on the street uh, amid, you know, uh, uh, basically a riot and people fighting. And, uh, you know, in Chicago, you had four killed, 34 shot. Um, you had a, a riot in, uh, I think it was in South Central Los Angeles and a whole bunch of other places around the country. You know, and all of this is a video that shows up on the Internet, right? Everybody's seeing it. Um, and it just points out, you know, I mean, Chicago is a perfect example, right? I mean, the the community organizing community, right? And the and the civil rights mob uh, has a full scale hold on that place at this point. I mean, you have gone from Lori Lightfoot to Brandon Johnson as the yeah. mayor. Oh, God. Uh, I mean, it is. I mean, you're talking about legitimate 
um, neo-communists, I guess, would be the way I would put it. And these are the people that, uh, you know, the Jesse Jackson rainbow push folks of the world have installed in power. Okay. Um, and life there is worse on average than it is from a moral standpoint, not necessarily that, you know, people that the, the poverty is, is as grating as it is in sub-Saharan Africa, but from the standpoint of the lives that people lead in some of these cities or in all of these cities for that matter. Um, I mean, you know, you're talking about folks that are absolutely miserable yes. and, and, and the common, um, you know, habits of folks that live in these places are, I mean, just absolutely redolent of despair and depression and hopelessness um, and, and a lack of faith that if you do the right things, good things will happen to you because it doesn't happen that way in, say, South Side Chicago uh, or in, you know, anywhere in New Orleans or in, you know, some of these other places around the Philadelphia is a good example as well. Um, you know, and, and nobody in that community does anything about it. Right. And, you know, I'll let in the last month, or six weeks or so, you've had the NAACP issuing travel advisories for all these different red states that are passing, you know, basically bills like, you know, transgender surgery bans for minors. Okay. And, and somehow the NAACP says, oh yeah, it's a travel advisory because, you know, you're, you're attacking people of, of color and of, of, um, you know, uh, whatever exotic sexuality. And so you're intolerant or whatever. And it's like, yeah, but the worst places in those States and everything else is like the places that you elect the leadership. Right. right? So why doesn't somebody put out travel advisories for the places that you run? Um, and nobody has to obviously, because I don't, I don't know that there's a big tourist trade in Philadelphia right now. Um, there certainly is less of one in New York, which is run by the same people. And we, and we see what happens in the subways. Yeah. You know, and in other words, on Juneteenth, we, you know, we, okay, yeah, we're going to go through and we're going to look at the history of this and we're going to, you know, and we're going to say, yeah, it's a thing. And they keep talking about reparations for slavery. And it's like, yeah, but there's no effort being made to make things better for the folks, um, who are the descendants of the victims of all that. Right. right. When it's not that hard to do, you're legitimately running these cities into the ground and you're not promoting any positive behavior. People live better lives and you're just blaming it on people that don't even live there anymore. Um, you know, and I like I, I, my problem with this is like, OK, so how are things ever going to get better if this is the leadership that you're going to have? Well, this is you know, this is the problem is that. They think that being black is all about being left, not understanding that you could be 100% lily white. And if you're going to be left, right. you're still going to have problems. Right. And, you know, this is why communism collapsed. I mean, I don't think there were many uh, uh, black people or people of color in Moscow or Russia uh, during the days of the Soviet Union. And the place was was poor and was uh, eventually did economically collapse. It's because of the policies. And uh, this is this is a big problem. And, you know, in terms of tolerance, I I have to say, you know, we we, we see these Juneteenth rallies and I'm wondering what would happen if somebody walked in there with a big sign that said, thank you 
GOP for June 19th, for Juneteenth. Thank you, Mr. Lincoln. Thank you, Republican I, Party. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it would go well for them. <laughs> no, probably not. I mean, I, you know, you'd have to get someone like Alex Stein to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, the thing that bugs me, which is why I go on sort of at length in these articles about this particular topic, is because I think people just don't know their history. Yeah, that's right. And and what, what got me on this was back in 2008 when I wrote the original one, and I had, you know, Obama was getting ready to be nominated, and I was looking at the uh, DNC website, and they had a section of it, and I think Howard Dean, I, I, I could be wrong, but I think Howard Dean was the chairman at that point. Um, they had a section on um, Democratic Party history, and I looked at it, and... <laughs> redacted <laughs> it's yeah it stopped there were 52 years of missing history i counted <laughs> and i said hmm and and what might have happened during those 52 years <laughs> right and i went hey through, what am i missing here <laughs> i went through chapter and verse i went through i mean and i really looked it up i read the platforms uh i read the history of the ku klux klan you know and you've got columbia i mean you know these aren't conservatives these are columbia university historian saying that it was the military arm of the democratic party uh, yeah. uh you know on and on they they went with all this kind of stuff and i thought okay we're gonna lay this all out well it it got a lot of attention the wall street journal loved it picked it up and ran it <laughs> but you know i just think that we have a lot of people in this country sadly who don't know American history. And uh, if we're going to have these kind of discussions on race, I always want to make sure that we get that history in there. Well, and, you know, the dodge is, right, is Nixon's Southern strategy made the parties change sides. Right. right. Like that That's the, and it's such an unmitigated lie. Yes. You know, and as somebody who, you know, I mean, I like, I mean, I live in Baton Rouge, right? So, I mean, I, I kind of came up, age politically around the time Reagan got elected. I was 10 years old in 1980. And so have seen sort of the evolution of the South into a Republican stronghold from a Democrat stronghold. And what I can tell you is that um, the people who were uh, Jim Crow voters in the 60s in the South stayed Jim Crow voters their entire lives, and they were Democrats. They might have voted for Reagan Okay, maybe. But in terms of electing their state rep or their state senator or their congressman or, um, you know, or a statewide elected official. Okay. Those people always voted Democrat. Right. What changed was they died off. Yeah. <laughs> right. So like if you were a, a middle aged 40 year old voter in 1960, right, by 2000, which is basically when the South really started flipping over. Mid-90s to 2000 was when Democrats started really fading from the scene. You were 80 in 2000, okay? Like, you know, those voters were gone. And it was the younger voters who, you know, grew up in a much different racial atmosphere. I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a kid of the, the 80s, right? My favorite comedians were, you know, Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor, right? Like- yeah. Right. You know, the, the, like Dr. J and Magic Johnson. I like both of those guys better than Larry Bird when I was a kid, right? Yeah. 
Um, and, and so from a cultural standpoint, the whole racial thing just kind of, it, it really went away for, I think, late boomers and Gen X people who are the people who moved the South from Democrat to Republican. That's right. And every time they start in with this Southern strategy crap and that the parties change sides, I mean, you cannot get me more nuclear pissed off than to have to endure <laughs> that crap. It's like, no, you're a liar. And I don't want to hear another word. Well, um, you know, we were, we lived, my, my Southern experience was when my dad was in the hotel business and, um, they, my mom and dad were, you know, the old high school sweetheart thing, Riverhead, Long Island, out there in the East End. And then that uh, that small skirmish known as World War II came along, and uh, he had to go off and do that for four years or so. And then he came back, and they got married. They went to work in New York City in the travel business. And then I'm coming along. They decided they didn't want to – they wanted to spread their wings. So they didn't want to go home, but they didn't want to raise a kid in – New York City. So they picked Northampton, Massachusetts, where I arrived, and they got into politics and all of this kind of thing. So when I was 14 or 15, my dad had a hotel job in Stanton, Virginia. Now, this is 1965. This is the height of the uh, civil rights revolution. And along the way, once we're there, I met a guy named Linwood Holton. And he was the Republican. He was running for governor of Virginia in 1965 he came he did fairly well he didn't win but well enough to try four years later and he won and what was one of the first things that governor holton did when it came school time he took his young daughter by by the hand and i believe i'm correct in saying that she is now married to senator tim kane um and walked her to school it was a black school mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and and integrated, et cetera. So the notion that that the Republican Party in Virginia was filled with, you know, a bunch of racists was just baloney. Right. I mean, I was living there and uh, wow. I mean, and it was quite the time to be there because um, when we arrived, th there were two high schools, two identical high schools, one black, one white. Um, but there were two or three black kids in my school the next year, the black school was dissolved completely. And uh, everybody was brought into, you know, depending on where you live, but it was all completely racially integrated, you know, so things were on the move at that point. And uh, it never it never stopped. And to say <laughs> that this was all some sort of Southern strategy thing, uh, you know, is baloney. Well, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a standard lie used to... Um... To, to obviate what everybody really already knows, right? Which is, like you said, they're the party of race. They're the party of treason. They're the party of lies. Right. <laughs> they're the party of dementia now. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, and it, you know, it's at the end of the day, it's the, we're looking at the party of ruin. Um, and, you know, just hoping that, that there's some reprieve from all this. Um, yeah, well, I hope springs eternal. And, uh, you know, one day at a time is the old TV song and show went. Uh, and we'll, uh, we'll get there. But you really do have to take it one day at a time and realize some things are whatever's going on with Joe Biden, we will find out somewhere. Uh, or our, our descendants will find somewhere. <laughs> but uh, uh, we just have to do our part. And, you know, I, I for one, 
you know, my, as I say, I live here in Pennsylvania, my congressman uh, and his friend is Scott Perry, who was the chair of the uh, House Freedom Caucus. And the other day I saw him, we, we had an event here and my very Republican minister called me and said, uh, he'd been watching all this stuff on television, and he said, "You know, my problem with with our Republicans is that they blink all the time." And he says, "When you see Congressman Perry, will you tell him, give him that message?" I said, "Absolutely." So I see Scott that night, and I told him, and he laughed. And he says, "Well, tell your minister for me, I don't blink." <laughs> well, and, and we need a lot more like Perry because yes. he is absolutely, um, you know, the, the Freedom Caucus to me has been the single most, uh, the brightest spot of everything that's happened in American politics. Yes, the exactly. way they held firm and got the reforms that, that they got have changed Congress for the better. Yes. Um, and so we just need a lot more of that. Um, and, you know, hopefully we'll get there. But um, it's something. Well, you know, just uh, I'll, I'll end with this little bit of history. When I was in the Reagan White House, I was the liaison to something in the House, a group of people in the House called the Conservative Opportunity Society. And uh, we would meet, I don't know, once or twice a month in the office of then Texas Congressman Dick Armey. And the members were Jack Kemp, whom I would later work for, Newt Gingrich. Um, There was a guy from New Hampshire uh, who later became a senator from New Hampshire. Uh, They were all conservatives. Well, wow, what a place to just sit there and listen to these people. And it was it was clearly, in retrospect, a forerunner of what would be the Gingrich revolution in mm-hmm. 1994. And mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, I think, you know, we've got people out there. The Freedom Caucus is like its logical successor. Yeah. And uh, I think they're they're really doing great. And, you know, on we go with all of this. Yeah. Well, Jeff, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thanks for uh, thanks for coming. I'm looking forward to getting you on with both me and melissa so that she can uh she can have at it with you uh, well, she is missed that she's terrific so yeah 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 well um you know she she sends her best like i said um guys do us a favor like and share and please subscribe you can find us at all the different uh uh, podcast platforms whether it's uh you know we're the we're featuring the show on twitter now um, and especially on Rumble, not YouTube because of the ridiculous rampant censorship at that uh, at that platform that's not going away anytime soon. Um, but uh, tell your friends because the spectacle it's it's growing. It's not growing as fast as we want, but we're fighting some headwinds with big tech. And um, you know, see us uh, see us as often as you can, and and show us to your friends, Jeff. Tell folks how they can uh, how they can get a hold of you on Twitter and elsewhere. Um, I have my own website, thejeffreylord.com. Uh, I have a podcast, The Word of the Lord with Jeffrey hey. Lord. And, uh, of course, spectator.org. Mm-hmm. And uh, those those places right there, uh, uh, you will uh, you will find me. Great. Okay. And guys, if you want to interact with me, um, you can find both of my two websites. One of them is thehayride.com. The other one is reviver.com, R-V-I-V-R.com. I'm also available at the American Spectator at spectator.org. And I'm on Twitter at either at thehayride or at reviver, R-V-I-V-R dot D-O-T com. Um, And we will see you next week on The Spectacle. (laughs) 